Oh my goodness. There's the man. Ace as I live and breathe. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm <laughs> doing great. Doing really great. Hello and welcome to Change for the Better, The Power of Arts in Education, episode 44. Change for the better and the music made me stronger. No, I'm changed for the better. You will live for me. Not all of my Change for the Better guests craved the spotlight. Some were very happy behind the scenes, putting their production talents to good use in, we'll say, quieter ways. My guest today goes back to the class of 1998. It was my third year with Thespians, and I had just started teaching part-time in the school and trying to get a foothold in the place that I was starting to call home. This young man, when he was a younger man, uh, he was my crew leader and backstage manager for our fall show, Rumors, by Neil Simon. And later that year, he moved down into the pit orchestra to anchor our spring musical Pippin on the drum set. And I remember that he was quite a presence. He was gregarious, capable, and ready to serve wherever he was needed. He seemed to love being a part of the thespians group in the shadows of the wing, adding his talents to our work, but outside of the spotlight. After he graduated from high school, he went to study communications and audio sciences at Curry College in Massachusetts. And he took his creative skills out into the IT workforce, starting out in project management at AV Tech Staffing. He eventually moved to uh, Morgan Stanley as a technical director and an executive events producer. And then he moved to KPMG to manage their video operations team. Most recently, he has landed at Bloomberg LP as a collaboration systems engineer. It seems that the roots in Thespian had sparked uh, something that inspired a career of creative leadership in technical production. I, I want to say that you've just reminded me about all the very nice things I've accomplished. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot how far down memory lane we were going to go. But I will say that near and dear to my heart, I have this in my home office. Whoa. So all my fidgeting about was looking for it because I knew I had it somewhere. And it's literally on a stack on a shelf system over here. Um, yeah. I have still got it, and I have my beanie somewhere too. Um, <laughs> you got to dig that out of the the box. You know, I, think I, know, I think I know exactly where it is. I can see it in my mind, but yes. Oh, that's so great! Yeah, and you only did thespians for a year. Yeah, so I was um, kind of an uh, an expat uh, back into the East Ramapo district of schools. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was I was out of the district for a while, trying my hand at private schools, and and just that was not my bag. So I kind of came back into the fold for the class of '98. Mm. You know, it was like coming home. It was like, oh, hey, you know, all the old friends you had, and and the familiar smell of everything. You know, the neighborhood and and all that. But uh, yeah, it was it was one year, but it was it was a hell of a year because it really allowed me and others to kind of venture down that road that I think is kind of the power panel, the circuit panel for what triggers you later in life to kind of help decide where you want to go with the 80, 90 or 100 years we have on this planet, if you're lucky enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one year, but it, it felt, I mean, it may as well have felt like four because it was it was really that much fun. So what we have is a series of 10 questions that I ask. It's actually kind of 10 and a half because it's one two-part question, but there's not a test. So you don't have to worry about that. So please tell the audience, what is your name, the year that you graduated, and a little bit more about what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, so let's start with the easy ones first. Uh, my name is Matthew J. Hochberg. Um, I use the J now because that's somehow what's landed on my email signature at work. So everyone just considers me MJ there. When I graduated, that would be the ripe year of 1998. <laughs> uh, a much simpler time. Kind of miss those days a little bit. So now um, I uh, actually just, I'm coming up on my year anniversary there. Um, I work for uh, Bloomberg LP. Yes, it's the same Bloomberg that uh, was the mayor of Manhattan for many, many terms. What I'm doing for them, uh, wearing many hats as I usually did, no matter what job I took, enabling the business to support the duality of how we work now. So both the hybrid and the in-person. And if you're hybrid or you're you just can't be in the office for something, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a brainstorming session, a client session, that there's equity in your presence. You feel as, as close to the room and as close to those that are in the room as possible, which means, you know, the audio and the visual portion, all of the digital systems from, you know, whiteboarding to interactive 3D modeling of content and, and really just... If I couldn't be there, I still have all the tools at my disposal to have an impact as if I was there. That's the simplest way I can probably break it down. You know, I kind of wish that you were there during the pandemic uh, with for our kids because there was um, not a whole lot of equity. We had a lot of difficulty first just getting our hands on laptops because there was a run on laptops and Chromebooks. Sure. And then an even greater issue, especially in our district, was getting the connectivity, the Wi-Fi access. And so they had to, you know, get yeah. hundreds of, of hotspots mm -hmm. just to allow the kids to be able to connect and try and get in once they did have a laptop. So it was really a, a yeah. put on how do we make this more equitable and um we were always behind. The pandemic was a great equalizer, and I think a uh, somewhat of a of a an aggregator for the for the haves and have-nots. And it really painfully, in a lot of ways, I think, mm -hmm. kind of cranked up the pressure on the lack of infrastructure for everyone uh, when something like this comes down the pipe. Even people in the in the neighborhoods that you know that everyone's house had Wi-Fi, and and the kids all get laptops as part of their their kind of curriculum. Um, not everyone had equal service or, you know, they didn't have tech savvy parents or 
you know, there was just this kind of thrust into the the spotlight of, all right, you know, how good are you at going virtual? It was a very touchy subject for for some because, you know, maybe they only had one computer in the house or, you know, they had a, they had to run an extension cord from where the internet came into the house to hardwire in. Now it wasn't just about the car you drove, it was can your kid connect to get his education, like at the very bare minimum, like, come on, this should, this should not be a problem in this day and age where you can, you know, order anything on the internet and it's at your door in less than a day. This shouldn't have been a problem for people, but of course. The cracks in the foundation of our infrastructure as a society that everyone kind of just went, eh, you know, it won't be a problem until it happens. And then it happened and it was like, uh-oh, you know, supply chain, we have, we see gaps. Technology, we see gaps. How they handled the doling out of medicines. I remember years, and I think during like the Bush administration or the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. there was this this crazy plan that if ever were there, there was a a nuclear issue or a pandemic, that the fastest way to get vaccines to the people was to use all fast food restaurants as drive up depots because they're they're efficient, they're fast, they're already there. Everywhere. There's millions of them everywhere. Yeah, that we see how well that worked. Um, yeah. But yeah, it didn't it, it happen was, at all, actually. It didn't happen at all. And, and I remember going for our first jabs at uh, Giant Stadium. And it was like something out of a movie. It was like watching Outbreak. It was like, you know, I'm looking for Dustin Hoffman. Like what, you got military dudes, there's bullhorns, you got stickers. It was like, is this Lines really happening? going all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I'm still a little bit shell shocked from how all that went down. Um, it's, it's and it's actually interesting because now we're you know for the most part we're on the other side of it. And I'm like, we we actually went through that. That was actually an extended period of time that we all went through. It. Yes, I've begun to kind of question, and it's just because this is the stuff that you know I know will impact you know our daughter and her friends and as as humans as as a society. I think we have a pretty amazing way of being very elastic and kind of rolling with the punches to to a certain degree. And we always seem to kind of bounce back a little bit wiser, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more prepared for what may happen down the road. I sometimes wonder like, all right, you know, we keep getting these one, two gut punches and they're happening in more rapid uh, series than they than they used to. It was like one every 10 years. All right, yeah, we can take that. But now it's like, how much how much more stretch do we have in the in the rubber band before it just can't recoil and and come back to the way it was and it, it is something that concerns me because it's it's mental health what the, the generation you know that that is kind of living through this you know our daughter is, is seven now and 50 percent of her life was pandemic we, we think about it she was it was 2020 she had just turned three that september her first real public school experience wasn't in person for the first year i mean when i think about it it's like okay that that has a different taste it's ollie versus foreman you know you, you keep getting hit it can be more difficult to get up but we i think we are resilient and young people are resilient too much mm-hmm. much more resilient than we yes. are So, you know, where your daughter didn't have her first experience in school, in school, she probably got to school adjusted and like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be. Great. Moving on. She did. Um, It was actually kind of an interesting thing because we thought like plausible deniability and ignorance being blissful because they don't know any different. 
um, like we were always like, you know, how she could acclimate and she's a very outgoing kid and she's smart as a whip. So we, we didn't have any fear there, but it's this new environment and she's seen these people two dimensionally. And you know, you know what? I think like I'm looking at the high school kids because it, it hits the high school kids, you know. Oh, yeah. There's still social mess that, that happens in the adolescent set. Oh, yeah. But I do feel like there's some more compassion, like overall, like on the broad sense, you know, people are more willing to help each other out. People are more willing to, because everybody struggled so much. And I think everybody understood. I don't, I don't know how long that's going to last, yeah. but um, for the moment, it's nice that like, there's a little more maybe community building. Yeah, that was that was a big that was a big thing um, during the pandemic. We I mean we live on a street. It's a dead end street, mm -hmm. and all the kids all know each other. They all go to the same school. When when everything shut down in March of 2020, it was like all right, what do we do? You know, like we got food deliveries and we got you know everyone shut in. But then as the it was actually kind of nice that it, that that everything shut down going into the spring mm -hmm. because. Everyone was out riding bikes. Everyone was out on their lawn chairs. We were having, you know, five o'clock happy hours after work because everyone was remote. Um, all the kids got to learn how to ride their bikes together. Like, all, it was very, you know, Maple Street. It was very 1950s is, is what I would imagine the 50s were. I did drive in movies on our front lawn. Um, so the whole neighborhood would come down and like, you know, hey, what do you want to watch tonight? All right. It really became this fantastic sense of community that... I don't want to come off as a cynic, but I also know that it was going to be short lived because once the distractions kick back in, because mm -hmm. systems were spinning back up, mm -hmm. you know, people have their soccer games and their dinners and whatever. And that's going to be a point in time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that it happened because it truly is an exhibit of what is possible when people tune out the static and get back to what's really important, which is family, which is community, which is doing the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you're going to gain from any part of it. But yeah, to your point, the, the compassion and all that, it's um, it's a, it's a trigger switch. When, when times get tough, we have this really amazing way as a people to turn on the, on the niceties. But then, you know, conversely, once we all get distracted again, it's like, you know, you're honking at your neighbor because they're not moving fast enough through the green light that just turned green. It's, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, let's tone it down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> let's yeah. turn our attention back to your high school, yes. specifically your senior year. Yeah. And I want you to use hopefully that not too cynical adult brain sure. to describe your adolescent self. So adolescent self, coming out of the, the private school sector uh, and coming back into the East Ramapo School District at that time, uh, I couldn't have been more cautiously optimistic and nervous scared um, because like, you know, these were people that I had gone all the way up through the elementary systems with, the Fleetwoods, the Eldorados, being kind of extracted from that. Even that, you know, the, the, the Chestnut Ridge Junior High, or it was still Spring Valley Junior High when I was there. But to be kind of replopped back into the mix, there was a lot of familiarity and a lot of comfort and a lot of safety there. The transition back into public school life, after my first two hours in Spring Valley High School, I was like, yeah, this is home. And it felt like home. It was a strong sense of that community we were talking about because these were kids and friends that, again, I had grown up with. Not having the the social concern anymore, it was like, okay, now I'm in, I'm dug in, I'm embedded. 
what is this school really? What what can I do? I'm not a I'm not a sports guy. I'm not a geek. I'm not, you know, super bookworm or anything. And it was like, I think it was a mutual friend of ours um, who was the stage manager. I, I'm not going to mention names, but he was the stage manager. And he's like, you should come out for for thespians. And I'm like, okay, what what the hell? What did you just call me? What's a, what's a thespian? And he's like, well, you know, it's this group of, of, you know, theater guys and girls that, you know, we have a theater program. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm down with that. I did, I did stuff. And actually, I don't know if you realize this. I'm going to, I'm going to share a quick anecdotal story about this. You and I had an interaction way before high school. And it was during a summer. I want to say it was like the summer of 92, four, one of those early 90s. Okay. My brother and I were enrolled at the Rockland Center for the Performing Arts. And it was, you know, it was like, it was a, it was a summer camp. It was like an eight weeks, uh, you know, thing. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? Summer is about swimming and, you know, big fields and playing catch. But there was something that drew me to doing the drama side of it. Mm -hmm. And you, I think, were actually there. I think yeah. you were a choreographer yeah. or... And I, and like maybe 15 years ago, I was watching home videos that my mother had taken during our last day there of all the, the recitals and everything. And I'm looking and I hear, I hear you. And it says, and this is Stacy. I said, no way, no way. And it was, it was you. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about familiarity and we talk about, you know, kind of falling back on that, on the, on the comfort. When I walked into the auditorium with if with, with uh, Ms. Filecoff, yeah. And I saw, I said, wait a minute, I know this person. <laughs> and I didn't make a big show of it, but I'm like, yep, okay, this was supposed to be. This was, this was that cosmic jolt back to seven years earlier. So I knew that by stepping in there, I was making the right choice and, and understanding what the production was. And, and I was confusing Neil Simon with Paul Simon. And, you know, and it, it was just like, wow, okay, they got mixing boards, they got speakers, they got lights. And, and we're allowed to touch all this stuff. And that was, you know, during the earlier part of my high school career, it just wasn't, it wasn't the focus. Like they had programs, but it wasn't regarded as a cultural cult or a cultural community branch on the tree that, that, that 731. 21, uh, 721. 721. 721. <laughs> 731, you know what? 731 is where my office is. That's 731 Lex. That's why I'm thinking 31. 20, 21, 20. It was effortless. It was just your ideas were regarded. You could talk to the master carpenter. You could talk to Matt. You could talk to if, and it was just like, oh my, you're going to let me help build the set. I'm going to run cable, blah, 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 blah. And that started for me at least, and I'm sure there were others out there that started the confidence to believe in yourself that you could do this for a living or a, a part of it for a living. And, you know, maybe not feel like you're working a day in your life because it's truly what what makes you passionate and gets you out of bed. And I remember when we were doing rumors uh, and, you know, Pierre, God rest his soul. Um, you know, he was a big part of that show. And I was blown away by the caliber of these high school kids. Like this was not just, I am the person, like they're not reading. This was, this was like on their way to, off-Broadway level acting 
And it was actually a little bit intimidating. I'm like, oh, I better not muck up my part because they're going <laughs> to they're gonna suffer if I don't do my cues right. There was a part in the show, and I remember it because, again, you know, my mother being the wonderful woman she is, videotaped everything, even with the lens cap on sometimes. Yeah. And there was, the, there was a part of the show in rehearsals where there was a scene where a car was arriving to this dinner, this affluent dinner party in, in Stevens Landing. Matt Sherman at the time, I can't believe these names are coming back. He made m mention in the show like, oh, so-and-so is here. What are we going to do? And, you know, all the, the, the subterfuge was starting to pick up um, during the show. And I was sitting in the audience watching this and kind of going through the book. And I said, "What? he's looking at the curtain, but there's nothing happening outside. And it almost looks like he's pantomiming. And I said, there needs to be an effect there. There needs to be something there that triggers him to look at the window naturally as so what she's going over there for like he didn't he was you know, just looking at the window for his cue and i think I, I think i said to you or if i said i think we got to have some kind of a light like that that replicates car headlights kind of pay you know when, when mom and dad get home and it's dark out and the headlights turn into the driveway you get that just that kind of that quick wash before they turn off and i went i went home and i i remembered and this was again this is just what doing theater and drama can trigger in a kid where I knew exactly where in my parents' garage, where this thing is that we could use. And I had to beg and plead my dad to let me use it because it was like from 1952. And all it was was a light bar. It was a, it was a piece of steel with two sockets in it, two Edison sockets, and it had two floodlights. And I said, if we could just use that, plug it in, and then just do this against the curtains, that would add the dimension to the thing. He said, okay, but you break it, we're gonna have a problem. I said, fine. And we brought it in and it, it was exactly the thing that was needed because it, it cast that quick glow. And I think some of the audience could see it. And it wasn't like, oh, someone turned on a light backstage and ruined the, the queue. It was, no, that was the trigger for Matt to go over and say, holy God, someone's here. I believe some people may, may minimize. It's those little instances that begin to place the bricks in that foundation for where you could potentially take that later in life. And, and the pride that you'd feel every time you'd see it, you go, that's my light bar. It may have been very small to some, but that's where you get the juice. That's where you get the excitement, the passion for wanting to do more of that little thing, which could be very nuanced, but that just making theater, making drama, using that part of your brain, Building those blocks of confidence, which then give you a, a compass to want to do more in that industry. Coming into high school, back into the high school scene and having that outlet and being able to contribute and seeing the fruits of your contribution were huge. That was the fall production, right? Nice. And then, you know, I had the incredible honor of working with Chris in the pit uh, with Pippin. And again, this weird sense of community and this weird cosmic thing where we start, you know, the, the, the wire framing of Pippin and who walks in? Woody. <laughs> Woody <Yeah>. is Neil Berg. <laughs> yes, Neil Berg. Woody Neil Berg walks in and I go, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is the guy who I worked with at Deer Mountain Day Camp because he was the musical dude. He did all the camp shows. He you know, had the keyboard out in the sports field. It was this weird communal homecoming 
first it was you, then it was it was Neil and you know the friends and it and so we start working on Pippin and I'm like okay now I'm off the stage or I'm not backstage now I'm in front so now I really can't screw up <laughs> and you're the drummer so, you're the anchor I'm the drummer. yeah and that was and I remember just like I'm not a gloater and I'm not a I'm not a walk around with you know your thumbs and your in your suspenders but like when people realized that I could play mm-hmm. it was like oh all right what do you got and you know, while we were doing the rehearsals and those rehearsals, they were they were hours long, and you know, people would would you know have emotional breakdowns and dehydration, and and they'd, they'd hurt parts of their body. And I remember, I think it was a Saturday, a Saturday rehearsal. Everyone was like super bummed, tired. They you know, like the school week was was kicking their butt. And I was like, well, this is the only thing I know how to do. And I started. It was right around because '98 was an interesting year musically, because this this swing phenomenon swept the country like within six months mm-hmm. and there was a group um it was actually called the cherry pop and daddies mm-hmm. they had this song and Zoot it was right baby Zoot riot everyone's in the in the auditorium in the rehearsal hall just not feeling it and i just started doing a swing a swing beat mm-hmm. and then i think neil kicked in chris kicked in and before we knew we had we had a full swing band going and everyone was on stage. Everyone <laughs> was clapping. Everybody was having a good time. And I mean, we were absolutely drenched in sweat by the time it was over, but it was, it was what we needed to do to get the, the, the energy back up so we could continue to work on, on Pippin. Being able to leverage a talent and not have it exploited, because that's the other big thing too, is there's, there's, the, there's the contribution that's regarded and revered. And then sometimes, you know, as you, this is where the cynical part of my brain comes in, but, um, you know, your, your true passion can then sometimes become the key to a lot of people's successes. Mm-hmm. So you being able to do something really well, people see it and all they see are, okay, how is this going to benefit me? Mm-hmm. Um, but the beautiful thing about doing high school drama and high school theater and high school theater craft, for that matter, you were doing it for the purity of student theater. You were doing it for the, the purity of community and it just it just sang it absolutely sang even i think there was a oh, i can't remember her name but she played i think she played el gallo we had a female el gallo didn't we oh my, you're talking about the lead player uh yeah yeah, yeah lead player hold on because we did a couple different versions of was, was it leah yeah, maybe yeah i think that i, I just blended i just blended the fantastics with pippin i'm sorry um no, but but we, i knew you took I remember like there was a there was like a rake scene where she was sweeping something and it just seemed empty. And again, just like, all right, um, I'm not gonna be afraid to throw this out there. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it was just, hey, you know, um, what do you think of this? And I have, you know, in with drumsticks, you have different sticks that give you different sounds. Mm-hmm. And we had these brushes. Mm-hmm. And I said, How about when you're when you're sweeping the stage or whatever, I just kind of dragged the brush over the top of the snare and it created a sound of sweeping. It wasn't about big stuff, it was about a series of little things that contribute and build that thing up so that when people are there, paying customers are there, you know, parents and whatnot, mm-hmm. it really, it feels like something that you could be seeing on 42nd Street. What was something that happened in that theater experience that helped you to manage or to regulate your adolescent self? Mm when you're in a situation 
like theater where you've got that's a huge cup um when you've got people relying on you and it's going to be something public facing you know it's a lot of a lot of pressure you got to hit your cues you got to hit your marks you got to commit those fundamentals help you to develop a maturity that will serve you later in life because there's going to be pressure there's going to be stress there's going to be anxiety there's going to be nerves there's going to be emotion there's going to be ups there's going to be downs but when you're able to do it in a relatively safe space because okay we're not you know people aren't on an operating table this is high school theater it lets you learn about who you really are and when you got to hit that button or hit that mark or or nail your blocking or fix a technical issue it teaches you self-resolution I think it teaches you how to maintain kind of operational readiness, mm-hmm. how to become a leader, how to be, and if you're not, if, if it's not in your, in your constitution to be a leader, then it helps you become a supporter and, and kind of talk people down off of whatever cliff they may be on. Cause you know, again, actors, actresses, there's ego, there's, past traumas that they're dealing with when they're out there in the in the spotlight you know am i good enough am i going to get this is this me you know you start questioning all this existential stuff about you Mm. so i i think being in in a situation like theater and i think also you know very much like any kind of a team a team mentality it really shows you what you're capable of and i think it also gives you some some very valuable tools to help you manage things down the road as life you know unavoidably sometimes gets more complicated i think in general it's those those traits sure, sure, sure. those those kind of you know those that muscle flexing you know you're where you're kind of on that precipice of child and and young adult and you're kind of leaving the nest a little bit and you know mom and dad aren't always there to kind of make your boo-boos better you kind of learn how to self-preserve and self-heal because it's it's a working environment what are you know one or two lessons that you learned in the theater that you think about or that you use today oh that's a very good question i think the first one is listen before speaking even if you know the answer listen before speaking i think there are several actually but i think the next one would be it is sometimes better to be kind than right. I like that. Those are the two. You may be dead on correct, but you don't know how a correction may hit someone. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something they've believed is true their entire life. And if you, you know, you're in the middle of 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 a tech dress or something and something comes out and you're like, no, that's just, if you can almost understand where the person is coming from in terms of how they're getting to that answer and you know that it ain't right public forum is not always the time to correct someone during that break or during a meal break or during some, you say hey you know this is what i've come to learn to be at more accurate what do you think and then you know it's like if if they were wrong they, they don't have that oh my god moment in front of 27 people it, it's not that violent push into oh my god i'm wrong what else am i wrong about i can't do this bye-bye and now embarrassed. And then they dismiss everything that they could have been because you had to toot your horn. You had to be right. <laughs> yeah. How do you think you've changed since you graduated from high school? Oh Lord. I think I think there's been a lot of a lot of really great stuff. 
I think I have learned to continue to be passionate about theater and about visual arts in general. That's kind of propelled me through my careers, my career, my careers in the different places I've worked. I don't want to say that, you know, you're, you're not duped by any means when you're a kid in high school, but you don't know Jack <laughs> when you're in high school. You think you've got it wired. And I think the, uh, the awarenesses that, that I gained in high school, being aware that, you know, some people might not be coming from the best homes. You got a lot of different socioeconomic things going on, different egos. You've got different privileges and everyone is coming in every day under a different struggle or under different circumstances. And so I think from high school through now, I think high school is kind of that beautiful melting pot. You got every walk of life, every background coming in and trying to do their best. And I think it shapes you if you let it, if you're coming at it from the right place too. I think it shapes you for what you're going to deal with in your professional life because you got, again, a mixed bag of people all coming in, trying to do their best at their jobs. Because when you're in high school, your job is to be a student. When you go out in the professional world, your job is your job, you know, your profession. It's what you what you make your living at. How it's changed, I, I actually think maybe the more things change, the more things stay the same. It's more amplified. It's the same kitchen, just maybe a different a different dish. Where, you know, when you walk into your, your office, it's really like you're walking into high school. You're walking down the hallways again. Instead of a locker, you have an office. It's this weird kind of subtle programming, I guess, that, you know, just like you ride the school bus, it's kind of preparing you to commute for a living. I think, again, those, those foundational elements that are there really don't shift too much. But again, you, you have to read the signs. You have to, to know what the play is before you before you act. And that's why that first rule is listen first, then speak. In terms of how life has changed from high school to now, it's very similar to high school. But on a larger scale, um, your, your social, your situational awareness has to be really ramped up. Because this day and age, you know, everyone's got something. Um, and I just like high school, there's always drama. <laughs> oh, yeah. What would your adult self tell your high school self now to help ease the way? I think it's okay not to have a clue as to who you are yet. It's okay to be uncertain. Don't overcommit yourself. And don't take yourself too seriously <laughs> because what you think right now is important or as you zoom out, everything is graduated. Everything is, is a step. It's, it's another rung. Get into the relationships, whether they be just friends or romantic or otherwise, that will only benefit you and that will help you grow. Don't get stuck with energy vampires. Don't get stuck with people that will drag you down, drain you, and leave you for dead. There's this really weird opposites attract thing uh, as you get older, like in the high school years, where, you know, you could be regarded as a leader or someone who's a fixer 
or someone who's got like great understanding and compassion. And what inevitably happens is people aren't even aware of the fact that they kind of latch on to people like that and they hope that you can fix them, but really all they're doing is exhausting you. <laughs> uh, and then you're walking around like feeling pretty garbagey about yourself or about just, you know, in general. And you're like, why? How come after I talk to that person for two weeks, I, I feel like I need, you know, like a vacation. Only surround yourself with people that, that are happy that you're around and that want you to succeed and that when you tell them good news, they're truly happy to hear it. Don't get in with people that have other agendas. True. And I, and I think the third part, if I'm on number three, not everybody that you run into and it's in your life is going to be there forever. There are some people that are just there for a season, for a, for a short time. There's, there's a reason why they're there. If, if they're not there when you turn around later on in life, it doesn't mean that you did something wrong. They were there for just the right amount of time. It was necessary for them to be there with you to help you become who you are. What is something that you're grappling with now? the balance between work life and enjoyment slash happiness mm. when you're dating and then you get married and then you buy a house and then you have a kid and then you get a dog you know everyone says be careful you know your possessions they're gonna own you you're not gonna own them and it's it's more than that it's just it's being able to constantly recalibrate yourself to ensure that you're truly paying the energy and the attention to the things that absolutely matter most for the long term. Jobs, they're not that important. Yes, they're a source of income. Yes, they give you some sense of security, which is completely not true at all. It's, it's maintaining that balance of you have your job, you also have your work, your, your home job, and you you got to be present for all of it and it's very hard not to become a robot it's very hard not to you know you get up early in the morning you do your gig you come home uh you make dinner you play with the kids you play with the dog maybe you go for a walk you do something for yourself and then it's eight o'clock everyone's got to get ready for bed and you're just on this hamster wheel that's a really tough one and especially with kids i mean the sad truth is you really only have those incredibly innocent years for about four years, <laughs> zero to four, where they don't know any different. They don't know any better. They've never been rejected. They don't, they've never been truly scared of something that's legitimately scary, not just like the monster in my closet kind of thing. And then once like something, something like around five or six years old, there's like this, this self-awareness mm you have a harder time protecting them and then again it like it ramps up the pressure because you think you know well i've got to be good at my job i've got to be i've got to be reliable i've got to be accountable i've got to i've got to fix every issue so that i can be you know uh indispensable and and you know that'll mean security for my family and blah 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 blah, blah. and and lately when you look at it through a different pair of glasses you realize how just damn foolish that is hmm. the, the house the kids, the health, the spouse, that's the important stuff. And it's hard because you, you get you get really wrapped up into it and you get this really funky tunnel vision. 
there are these blinders that get turned on and it can be very hard to balance that. My wife and I have a very open communication type of relationship where I can say, look, like, you know, I know we're going out for dinner tonight with friends, but like, I'm, I'm battling something. Like if I'm not my jovial, regular self, like it's nothing, it's not that I don't want to be with everyone right now. It's just like, it's a thing I'm thinking about. And then, you know, she'll ask, you know, well, what is it? And I'll lay it out and she'll go, how important really is that? It also flips on the other side too. She could be, you know, dealing with something at work or what, and it's just like, well, let, let's, let's, let's zoom out. By tomorrow, is this really going to be a thing? Probably not. Okay. You know, and if you made a mistake, that's what tomorrow is for. If you're lucky enough to have it tomorrow. So it, um, I think it, it comes down to that balance, balance and the priorities. You know, it's an existential thing. I think it's, it's kind of the price of admission of being alive. Even if you didn't ask to be alive, you're kind of stuck with the bill. We like being alive at this point. So I think we do. I think we do. Um, Tell me one thing that you miss about your high school self. And then yeah. one thing that's gotten better since you graduated. The one thing I really miss about my high school self is uh, being able to take more risks. Mm -hmm. Throwing caution into the wind. Mm -hmm. Because the gravity, the repercussions weren't as great. And and even if like you did get a ding in the fender, like it buffed out pretty easily. Perfect. Uh, um, now, what what was the second the second part of One that thing question? That's gotten better since you uh, became an adult. I'll give you the comical answer, and then I'll give you the real answer. Okay. Comical answer is having the desires and the mind of an eight year old, but now having the resources to go and do those things that you as an eight year old. Like, you know, okay. Don't get me uh, started. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I want an RC truck. No problem. Let's and here and we got it. You know, not having to wait for the birthday or the or the the holidays to get the stuff that you want. But now I think what has gotten better since graduating high school. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually that's a very good question. For however someone could rationalize what is real and what is not real, I think the relationships that you you have now in life are the ones that you'll probably have until the end. Whereas in high school, you know, it was very transitory. You know, you, you might feel like you're going to put all your, all of your hopes and, and, and trust into people when you're in high school, because you feel like that's what a friendship or, or a relationship, you know, means. And you may have the emotional maturity to understand that, but not everyone in high school does and they can't reciprocate it now you know at, at almost 43 um you've kind of whittled down your friend circle to the ones that you can take to the bank and there's more stability there and it's more reciprocal than you trying to pull people to do stuff and they're just flaking out and they're not flaking out because they're flakes they're flaking out because they're in high school and their preferences and their desires and their whatever they're constantly in a state of flux. Um, so I, I think what's gotten better is that the relationships that you establish as you get older, they're probably the ones that are gonna be there with you for the long haul because there's this just maturity. Everyone's kind of been through the ringer and more the ones that- Yeah, yeah. Got a much more, you have a much more refined palate for the flavor of friends and the, and the relationships that you that you want to have. And look, your circle may be five people, it may be 50, 
but whatever the number, it is based on your standards. It's based on your values and they're like-minded. You don't have to discuss every little thing. There's a lot of non-verbal, I gotcha. Like, I know this isn't what you'd wanna do, or I know this is not a situation you'd wanna be in. And it makes it so much easier. Yes. If you could give a piece of sage advice to high school students now, one piece of sage advice, yeah. what would that be? Turn off your devices. Turn off all your social media. Turn off and throw away anything that's got a battery that does not support life or well-being. Between the TikToks, the Facebooks, the LinkedIns, the Hulu, the Yahoo, is all got one mission, and that's to distract you from who you truly can be. It is forcing kids to measure themselves against immeasurable metrics and completely inaccurate expectations. Mm -hmm. That would be my, my advice. Get a tape deck, put it back in your car, maybe a CD player, create playlists, go to concerts, interact, get dirty, get your heart broken, but have it all happen in real life. Don't digitally diminish yourself. That would be my sage advice. Get your head out of the cloud. What are three self-care practices that you do today to help you to center or to regulate yourself? One is I still play the drums. I still do them. So I try to do that on a daily basis. Like I said, you know, the eight-year-old mind with the resources to do. So yeah, it, you can you can still rock out um, and it's very loud in the house. and. Everyone loves it except the dog. So first thing is always do something in your daily routine that, that is solely and totally yours. Nobody else's and you can do it freely. The second would be do something that you're not good at. So for me, um, it is honestly getting myself into situations that test my ability to negotiate, uh, whether that's talking with somebody very senior uh, to me at my at my office, having a difficult conversation with a friend or and it could even it could even be like you're standing your ground on a topic um, and that you're not just kind of being that wispy weed in the wind. You're affirming your your position. I think being able to state your preferences, state your point of view and not be bulldozed over. Like those kind of those conversations can sometimes be a little awkward. They got the numbers, they got the data, they got the statistics to back every part right. of what they're saying up. Yeah. And for you not to say, well, I, I, you just blew my moral compass off course. No, being able to 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 stand your ground and and have those I say difficult conversations, but they're I think they're more like challenging or make you think. Yeah, make you think situations. And the third one, I drink a lot of water. <laughs> Because I have, I have found I feel I operate much differently uh, when I am fully hydrated than I am not. That's why I have the giant mug. It's not uh -huh. coffee, it's tea. Yeah. And do you see what it says? Shut up because that's why. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I have a very funny sign over our refrigerator in the kitchen that says, if it ain't broke, I fixed it. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and if it's broke, I don't know about it. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Matthew Hoffer, it has mm -hmm. been a delight to reconnect after, let's see, is it 25 years? Something like, other than like the, the bump in on Facebook. Yeah, I think it's mm -hmm. been some 25 years. Wow. Um, yeah, definitely. I've been doing this for too long. <laughs> it only feels that way if you keep talking about it that way. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Good point. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me here on my little podcast. Everybody tune in next time for Change for the Better, episode 45. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.